Welcome back to Slow County Public Policy and the Law, folks. We are speaking today with attorney Alan Hutkin, who's handled a lot of employment law and even some ADA law, and he hasn't just been on one side. But what I wanted to do was uh, finish up a little bit about what we were talking about, the history of private attorney general fees and uh, our English law that we inherited from them. Uh, There was a writ called Key Tam, where a private attorney could take a case on the cuff, and if they established a public benefit, they could go to the court and the court would order the other party to pay them, even though the person they were representing was too poor to hire them. And in America, of course, that continued. And in California, in approximately 1915, the California legislature actually adopted a statute that allowed private attorneys to take cases for the public good, and they might have to fund it themselves. They might have to put in their own money to develop the evidence and hire investigators, uh, take depositions. But in the end, if they benefited a large class of people by establishing or protecting a public right, uh, the court would order the other party to pay the lawyer their fees and costs. And that's, uh, for folks who want to know about this, that's Code of Civil Procedure 1021.5. It is frequently referenced in other settings. Uh, I'm not sure it's it's uh, referenced in PAGA. The right. So it's, it's also in the Fair Employment and Housing Act also. So what yeah. it does, and, it, and it's also in the Labor Code, yeah. because it's the public policy to require the defendant, if they have been found to violate the law, to pay for the reasonable cost and attorney's fees incurred by the employer, by the employee, or the person who suffered injury. It's essentially the same standards. Right. And, and um, that's so important to making sure that we have the laws followed not only by private employers, but frankly by governments. Um, that's, uh, I've gotten those kinds of fees when I've sued the city of San Luis Obispo for criminalizing the homeless or uh, sued the state of California when they uh, violated Prop 64 or when they have violated uh, the Constitution. Right, and then I've received a case, and just to give you an example, I represented a, a diabetic woman who was fired for having a diabetic reaction at work. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, we, we prevailed at trial, and the court awarded us our cost and, attorney, cost and attorney's fees that were incurred in representing her through the trial. And, of course, she'd been fired, so she really didn't have any money to hire you, did she? Correct. Now, now I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ADA lawsuits uh, that Mr. Gomez was talking about. Um, can, have you had experience with those? I have had experience in those. In, the, in those cases, I actually represented the employers who were being sued for the violations. But I wanted, just so there's an honest argument about both sides. Yes. I think that if you think about it from a disabled person's position... These laws have been on the books since the early 90s. It's not hard to hire an architect or somebody else who can examine your work situation to see whether or not you are in compliance with the American with Disabilities Act in California's law, disability laws as well. So, I mean, that's not a difficult standard for people to make. And so for a disabled person to go to a workplace or, or go to a business and want to use the bathroom or to be a customer and not being able to get in to the door, I can see their side why that would be so upsetting. And yeah. for what Mr. Gomez is saying, 
And I get, because like I said, I represented a number of businesses rep- defending those claims, is would be harmful for them in, in their claiming. But what, well, the, one the, of the things he missed that he ignored is that if you had an older business and you haven't made any changes to it, then it's grandfathered in. You don't have to make your place ADA compliant if you have an older building and so forth. It's only if you've done substantial remodeling that you really need to look at your business and say, okay, we let's get this checked out to make sure we're compliant or not. Well, that's true. And um and there are other exceptions, uh, for instance, if there's a historic uh, aspect to the building. Correct. Um, uh, there are exceptions to the ADA uh, rules that can be applied. And in California, you know, I always laugh about this. Do you know what it takes to be a historic building? I don't. Fifty years. Oh. <laughs> uh, some of us are older than that. So um, Some of us are. So, so um, you know, if, on the East Coast, they wouldn't think it was historic if it was less than 400 years of age. But what uh, strikes me about that is uh, I think there's been a lot of publicity concerning folks who are drive-by litigants who just come by and they take a picture of uh, something that's not ADA compliant and they make a threat. They send a threatening letter. And of course, folks get concerned when they get a threatening letter from a lawyer. Uh, I think that's... Uh, that's something that sanctions could be applied to if that's all somebody's doing. Isn't, isn't that true? That is true. And in fact, there was a, an attorney and a person who continually filed these um, disability lawsuits, and he was declared a vexatious litigant, and I believe he might have even been monetarily fined. And it got to the point where the court had an order which said he couldn't file any more of these cases unless it was approved by the court. So there are things that can be done to stop people from filing these frivolous suits if they continue or, or they're just filing them in mass. And I saw a number of those complaints that he filed because, again, I was defending businesses that had been sued in that context. And every time he claimed that he crushed his fingers, and I kept thinking, if you've crushed your fingers this many times, they probably should have fallen off because you <laughs> have been suffered such grievous injuries with all these injuries, you know, crushing your fingers. <laughs> My goodness. My goodness. What, what was he crushing his fingers on? Trying to roll up a ramp or something like that. Uh, okay. Okay. Or, or, or to use the bathrooms. I don't, again, I don't mean to make light of people no, with disabilities. And that's not, not my intent. And, and, and I do get both sides of the, of the, of the proposition. Well, now, um, there were some other aspects uh, that you wanted to discuss concerning the uh, arbitration clauses. So one of the advantages of the Private Attorney General Act is probably 50 plus, 50% or more of employment cases or employers require employees to arbitrate. And arbitration is an inherently unfair forum for employees because you don't get to be in front of a jury of your peers. You get to go in front of an arbitrator. And if you think about it, who is hiring the arbitrators? The employer. It's the employer. And they're paying these guys a lot of money. And so the arbitrators are, they know who's buttering their bread. It's not the employee who may in their lifetime appear before them one time. It's the employer who may have many of these cases. So the employee, when it goes into an arbitration situation, is in, is in a, an inherently unfair situation. And statistically, it shows that the employers win excessively in arbitration where they shouldn't, given the fact pattern. And uh, the, this initiative, would that reestablish uh, arbitration as something that the employee had to uh, 
had to go through? I'm not sure. I don't okay. want to say that. I'm not. I haven't read it that carefully. All right. And but PAGA prevents PAGA prevents arbitration in 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 certain situations, so, so that the employee can at least have a chance to be in front of a judge. And so it prevents. It provides a a, a forum for an employee to also be heard in in front of a judge instead of in front of a biased arbitrator who's in working on a tilted playing field. Well, folks, you're listening to Slow County Public Policy and the Law. We're speaking with attorney Alan Hutkin, who's been practicing employment law here in San Luis Obispo for 34 years. Um, Alan, do you do other kinds of cases besides uh, employment law? Uh, our firm represents, uh, yes, we handle real estate as well. Okay. And we do some business litigation. And uh, how many folks are in your firm? I have one of counsel, one attorney, and then three staff. One uh, Of counsel means somebody who's more or less retired and uh, the, you just keep their name on there? You could Is say that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not insulting anybody. But... Uh, that used to be a, a very venerable uh, way that law firms transferred over time in our county. Right. In fact, we had uh, one uh, district attorney whose name was on a law firm for probably uh, 20, 30 years after he died. Who was that? Uh, his name was Grundell. Oh, right. And uh, so you had Grundell, Fredman, uh, Burke, and I think Duno. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they, oh, well, anyway. So what, one of the things Mr. Gomez brought up was he, he talked about trial lawyers paying lots and lots of money to the legislature. And, and I think it's a misnomer because it's not just a one-way street. You have the Chamber of Commerce. You have a number of large businesses. In fact, one of the laws that California passed in the last couple of years was to change this, to clarify the standard because many businesses misclassify employees as independent contractors when they're really employees. This was, uh, and I think it was uh, a proposition on the ballot to actually classify them as employees, uh, or was it a statute, uh, SB5? Correct. Yeah. And what happened is you had one of the rideshare companies, was it either Uber? Uber, I think Lyft. Uber came in, and they spent an astronomical amount of money to We're going to be uh, coming back right after these ads, and we're going to talk about actually uh, the initiatives last year.